Special thanks to everyone who pledged money to crowdfund the show this week, including Matt Lacey, David Walker, Tim Edwards, Zilliko Elia, Andy Hagen, Jamie Holland, Roland Roberts, Ian Wilkinson, Alistair Harding, Dan Laney, Ian Mercer and John Balshaw. There's a full list of our supporters on 361podcast.com, along with information on how to help us for as little as $1 per episode via Patreon. Hello and welcome to 361, a weekly podcast about mobile tech and the world around it. I'm Ben Smith. I'm Ewan McLeod. And I'm Rafe Blanford. This is Season 14, Episode 8, and this week we're recapping Mobile World Congress 2017 from Barcelona. Rafe gets excited about 5G. Ben gets nostalgic about snakes, keyboards and Blackberry. Welcome back, chaps. How are you doing? Hello from Copenhagen. Oh, subdued. Hi, Stanford. I'm doing well, thank you, Ben. You don't that wasn't subdued. Anyway, back back in your box, McLeod. We're dealing with Blanford here. Well, I'm feeling a little weary. It's true, and I'm suffering from a little bit of post-conference flu. It looks very pale. Mm. Down the Skype line, can you look yes. at Ralph Blanford and paint a picture with words for our listeners to quite how destroyed, wrecked of a man Ralph Blanford looks? He's sitting slumped to the left side of his chair. Yeah, his head is kind of over. To the right, he is crumpled actually, yeah. and he looks really, really pale. And his his head is kind of languishing over his body. Ralph Blanford's voice says, "Let's record a podcast." Visually, he says, "I'd like to crawl into a box." <laughs> to be perfect, guys. So, anyways, did you have a nice time in Mobile Congress? In I had Barcelona? a lovely time in Barcelona. Okay. Barcelona. And you, McLeod, let's just check in with you. Copenhagen updates. What's the news in Copenhagen? It's, it's, it's really dark, but it is getting lighter. <laughs> still, still dark. Yeah. Any geography updates? Dark, still not a weather. Yeah, it's Copenhagen. about an hour from everywhere. As I, I was in Helsinki and Stockholm, and it was snowing this week. Excellent. In both places. And it was snowing here yesterday as well, Copenhagen. Have you discovered land borders with any other major European nations that you were previously unaware of? Yeah. Yeah. Someone said to me, Estonia, I went, oh, that's quite far away, isn't it? No. Because I keep forgetting how far, how I'm not in the UK anymore. Obviously, you see, the, right? the, the thing is, I, can, I think I could forgive you for not knowing that Copenhagen has a border with Estonia. I feel Germany was a it bigger a border. Oversight. It doesn't I, actually I would also technically have a border with Estonia, by the way, just to be clear. Okay. Yeah, it's no. at the other end of the Baltic. Yeah. I mean, I'm also I'm just saying a bit Estonia worried. is nearer. I'm, I think the bigger concern is you're kind of forgetting he's not in the UK. I mean, the whole speaking a different language, different culture, you know, there's a lot to give it away, really. For the avoidance of doubt, I don't speak a different language. We're not right? in Basingstoke anymore. <laughs> well, Everyone speak here speaks very excellent English. Okay. So we've yeah. learned that Estonia is not next to Copenhagen, and nope. uh, we've learned that Germany is next to Denmark. It's dark outside. It's connected to Denmark. It's connected to Denmark, and it's getting warmer. So presumably the snow is warming up, is it? Well, it's not, it's not lying. It's not lying on the... Uh, well, perhaps moving on from a fascinating subject, could we do some follow-up from last week's podcast, Ben? <laughs> Ray Bradford, impatient to get onto the valuable content. <laughs> That's fair enough. Move, so, move. Atma, who wrote in to tell us all about the smart home oh, cameras, has written back, and uh, as ever, he's being a star. So hi, Atma. He was telling me all about the way that he's using cameras, because I think last episode we said he tried loads and loads, including the Arlo's that you've got, Ewan, and he he mm. settled on Fleur FX. He wrote back and said, actually, he is now using the Arlo's. They tie in nicely with his smart home hub. 
but he's sparing the battery on the Arlo's for live streaming video by also using the Fleur FX. So he's got a mix. And obviously yeah. he's just using the Arlo's for security triggering. So what's the battery status update on yours? Right, it's uh, quite interesting. I, I don't think you should ever use Arlo's for live at all, not the, the battery ones anyway. So I, I had one in the hallway, and you can imagine in my house with two children and a wife and lots of activity, that was a mistake because I didn't really need to be in the hallway and the batteries have gone this week, completely gone. So I do need to replace them and they're about what, two or three euros, pounds each. And there's four of them per camera. So it does add up, you know, yeah. and I can see his point. But that was a silly place to put them though. To put the camera, I wasn't really thinking. I thought I'll put one here, put one there. But you leave it armed all the time as well. And well, he was saying to me, yeah. that well, I was he, trying it. Yeah, he he's now got his family trained to turn the sort of the security system on and off through the smart home. So yeah. they're actually, as they leave home, they're triggering the Arlo recording, and when they come back, they're turning it off, which I yeah. presume is another good way to. That's quite right. I I just haven't done that yet, but I can give you an update on the front door. Yeah, which is still at seventy one percent. Okay, so aside from and battery that's since, nerds... Yeah, that's three months-ish. Yeah, so viable um, battery-powered security battery cameras Battery-powered, and that's what, viable. eight to ten times a day, I reckon it's activated. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that was good. The other one I wanted to do for some feedback on was John on Twitter, at JCB underscore Digger, and I think friend of the show, Mike Stead, all pinged us around the time of our Smart Home episode and said, um, um, excuse me, I couldn't help noticing that uh, Amazon's just had a big outage, and so Nest and Ringo mm. on Blink all had big outages. What's the point in trusting these security-slash-entry-slash-remote-control systems if they are vulnerable to something simple going down like that? So what's the verdict, Ray Flanford? Well, I think you need to divide it into two things here, uh, the first of which is that uh, S3 is so big, it's quite dominant in the cloud space. And so it takes down multiple devices, which is a bad thing. Although I wonder how many people have all of those things in one go. The other bit is sort of cloud devices in general. And yes, it's a single point of failure. I think it's very notable because it takes everyone down at the same time. But I would say that often that cloud functionality is replacing something else. And it's often for storage or some of the intelligence around the motion sensing or whatever it happens to be. Previously, those would have been done locally, maybe with sort of a hard drive or whatever storage. They can still fail as well. They just tend to fail individually rather than in a group. And I think actually you'd have to compare the resilience of the two to really come to that answer. So much more noticeable as a failure, absolutely. Does that mean it's worse or better? Difficult to say. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say for these consumer-grade products where you don't have some kind of SLA relying on it for your absolute security solution may be a bad idea. but. You know, unless you're being burgled at the time S3 goes down, are you going to get that worried about it? Amazon S3, which is the storage component of Amazon's cloud service, has a, an incredible uptime record of like many, many, yeah. you know, 99 point something, something exactly. So it is rare it goes down. But as you say, when it goes down, it makes the national news. And just to bust some buzzwords, SLA is a, an industry term we'll use, service level agreement, which is typically only really what businesses get you and in terms of mm. I promise I'm going to keep my service running and I'm going to promise to pay you some credit or refund if it goes down rarely to the kind of cheaper com- consumer services like I mean like the Arlo for example that you're using or the Canary I've got they don't offer any compensation if the service goes down because you're just not paying enough to to deserve it right and it's it's typically comes down to, to minutes or in, in some cases you know seconds if uh, if you've got a really 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 super high SLA 
and, and it does make you think, right? Because the whole point of cloud is meant to be removing the single point of failure. But from a financial services standpoint, what's more important? I think I had a lot of my colleagues around the financial services industry going, ooh, ooh, that's not ideal. Because some of them have placed their services in Amazon and, and others are thinking of doing that. And that can be a little bit of an issue if the whole thing is going down. Yeah, I have a more of a hesitation for commercial services, although mm. there's ways you can get around that. But for home, I think I agree with Rafe. It's perfectly fine. But more importantly, yeah. the things I must be able to do pretty much all the time, like turn my lights on and off, they're terrible if they're implemented through the cloud anyway, because it's mm. way too slow and laggy. So broadly speaking, my test would be if it uses the cloud, but it's not performant in everyday life, then get rid yeah. of it. Most of the smart home solutions work simplistically locally with basic control and then use the cloud for all the cleverness and the integrations. So yes. it's the kind of the bells yeah. and whistles you lose when you have a big outage. Uh, I suppose it's only really some of the smartphone connected things like those ring front doors, which video mm. call you, you know, that will go down. But again, it's probably not the end of the world because somebody can hammer on the door. It's a big topic, though, because putting that intelligence at the edge of the network is generally a good thing for resilience. We're seeing a lot more of it, both in kind of traditional networks, but also, say, operators are, are doing the same sort of thing as well. What do you mean by intelligence at the edge of the network? Mm. So, so the, typically the model has been to kind of basically have connections at the outside that take data, and it can be from a sensor or something you're inputting, send it to a central server, do something with it, and then have it come back. And that's when we're talking about you know, smart home stuff. Quite a lot of the time, that's either storage of something or artificial intelligence. But you can actually have those algorithms or whatever it happens to be running at a local node. And that can be any distance towards the middle. It can be right at the very edge, i.e. the sort of hub in your own home for light switches. And so putting the intelligence there actually saves from a performance point of view. It's actually also quite good from an energy point of view because actually we should remember, although people tend to think of the network as free transport, it, it's not in fact. And I, I was thinking about this as well. And I'd say my power and my home broadband connection fail many, many times more frequently than Amazon ever goes down. And yeah, they, exactly. they have just as much of a catastrophic effect on my smart home gizmos. And that's the thing I come back to with S3. I think the other failure points are actually far more likely to have an impact, but you don't notice them because they're not happening in a, a collective way. And also even for big businesses, you sort of go, if you don't do S3, you presumably are having to do the infrastructure yourself. I would suspect that a lot of the failure points there are actually higher than S3. You talked about you know, Amazon has a, a great track record. Actually, they're specialists in doing that. And most of the time, they are quite resilient from the way they're architected. In this particular case, it was basically human error that caused the problem. It wasn't the uh, machines or anything like that. And it was a configuration yeah. issue. You know, in terms of multiple redundancies in hardware and sort of the storage and all the things like that, massively resilient, but you can't do anything about a human pressing the wrong button. Well, there are things you can do, well, but you can't. It, it's not economic to design all the risks out of the system. Indeed. It's really interesting to say, to say actually that um, there was some recent press around what the United States is doing around controlling its nuclear deterrent. I mean, obviously, that's a, a horrific thing in its own right, but just mm. academically, the science and the engineering that goes into designing things that have to have no risk of failure whatsoever. Yeah, and and how, how that is just a completely different engineering task. Anyway, which leads us on, not at all gracefully, to a success, I think, that we've got an opportunity to celebrate, being the most unique podcast 
in all of yeah. in all of the world. Real value add. A real value add. Yeah, I think uh, it's important. We try to pioneer. We try to give our listeners something that nobody else is giving them. We've done that by giving them a preview of Mobile World Congress after Mobile World Congress has yeah. um, well has concluded. Us. Yeah, so that really is absolutely um, a world apart. There is some science to it, though, guys, because obviously we know the problem with previews is that they're inevitably wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, but the trouble is when you listen to them, you don't know how wrong they are. So if you publish the preview after the thing has happened, listeners are immediately able to assess how wrong you are. That was quite bad in our case. Well, we're just ahead of the curve, Rafe Blanford. No, we're just, I, I just, just right. Right. Okay, yeah. Guys, good, it just good, didn't good. matter. Yeah. People aren't ready for the kind of wrong that we can be. So now my World Congress has definitely happened. You, McLeod, did you go? No, and I don't care. Next. I didn't go, and I sort of care. Ralph Blanford? I did go, and I know that both of you actually wanted to be there secretly, and you're just not willing to admit it. I just like uh, ham. No, no, no. Yeah. I could yeah. have been there, and uh, yeah, I do like the tapas, but I just didn't think, Blanford, that it was uh, relevant. I followed your updates. Thanks a lot. Thanks for being there. So we are going to recap Mobile Congress, but nobody but nobody except the journalists and the Everyone tech insiders else, yeah. cares about the show or nope. how far you walked or how much your feet hurt or what kind of bus there was or how <laughs> bad the pickpocketing was this year or how much it costs to get a coffee inside the show. So we're not going to talk about that and we're not going to rant about mm. how rubbish the show and the GSMA who are you sure? it are. Well, we might do, but we'll try okay, not to. Right. You know. right. But what we are going to talk about is all the stuff you saw because for better or worse, there is a ton of stuff there and it tells us what's going to happen over the next year or so in mobile and i always like the rafe blanford trend analysis because you know this is basically what the customers pay you the big go for it blandy go on right so i think the most important thing i took out of mwc ham was apart from the ham obviously mars bars (laughs) and maybe the mars bars four a day was my record by the way oh my god a day um that was how you power through 20 hours worth of uh event the thing is MWC now should actually be five or six different events. There's a traditional MWC that both you and Ewan will remember, which is focused all around the handsets. Kind of interesting this year, maybe less so. There's a couple of things we'll maybe uh, talk about. And then there's the networks part, which is all around operators. And the big emphasis this year was on 5G, but some other things to talk about. But I think the bits that were most interesting are the stuff that lies outside of that. So IoT has been a growing trend for a few years. But actually seeing the maturity of that and the impact it's going to have. And basically, it's got nothing to do with handsets. It's using the same connectivity, but the data that sits on top of that and what it will do to you know, shape society going forward, you start to get a real glimpse of that. Okay, so let me just stop you there because we'll stop and we'll chat about these topics and then we'll let you move on. Ewan McLeod, I don't know. I know you enjoy sometimes challenging Rafe Blanford. I'm just going to repeat what Rafe Blanford said. 5G is going to reshape society. That's nice, isn't it? Well, are you ready to be reshaped? It's, it's lovely. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Do you mean it's going to be faster, Rafe? No, that's, I mean, one of the benefits of 5G, but it's not really the important one. But I don't think we really need to elucidate on something that's so obvious. Elucidate. Wow, word of the week, children. <laughs> take, take elucidate <laughs> off on your cards if you're playing along at home. I have the thinnest grasp of what 5G is. And it's really faster. hard. It, well, it's really hard to understand because, of course, we started with 2G faster. and then 3G was faster <laughs> and then 4G was faster. but Faster was always only one yeah. of the characteristics. It's okay, just right, the one that quicker. was most valuable. Oh, okay, to me. so the two headline things that everyone tends to think about with 5G is, as Ewan says, it's faster and the latency Thank comes you. down. <laughs> yeah. You know, All that, right, that's let's a move benefit. On. That means that you can yeah. basically do real time teleoperation. You can stream VR and 360 events in real time. 
But actually, I don't think that's really the interesting thing about 5G at all. Actually, what it does is as 3G and 4G work about connecting people, particularly with regard to data, 5G is about connecting machines and sensors to each other. It's actually nothing really to do with humans in that sense. And so if you think we're on about five or six billion connections at the moment, how do you then get to 50 billion connected objects? That's what 5G is about. That's how you create smart cities. It's how you undergo industrial change. And that's why people talk about the fourth industrial revolution, which is basically taking lots of bits of data from factories, from agriculture, everywhere else, then putting intelligence across the top of that, basically AI to do automation and to make delegation and that massive amounts of efficiency. And just to take one example, smart cities, if you are able to do that and autonomous driving, suddenly you reshape urban planning and that would have a more profound impact on cities than anything else in the last hundred years. So I understand in theory, and I remember going to all the presentations where you see traffic lights talking to cars, talking to roads, talking to town planners, talking to fuel suppliers to make sure that everything is all super connected and it's all in a perfect place. But we were looking at that. Well, that was last time I was at Mobile Congress. That was years and years ago. And I always feel that these things overpromise because never they set up some sort of new technical capability and then sort of massively overproject the influence and the impact it's going to have without really thinking about the complexity of actually putting all of this connectivity into these things. And so when you look at the impact that 4G, for example, is having, it's fantastic that we have faster connections and it's fantastic that we have relatively low latency so that things like video calling happen. But if you compare to what we were promised, I mean, it was the, it's the equivalent of rocket packs and, yeah, and jet-propelled yeah. lasers. And I worry with 5G that we're back to this thing where actually there is a bit of an ulterior motive because 5G is going to drive a lot of spectrum sales and that's an industry in its own right. And I mean, I don't understand enough about it to talk about it, but it's more about people selling a dream so they can sell some more widgets and gizmos than it is really about kind of making my life measurably better in two years' time. I think that's fair. And actually, there is a need to do the investments in 5G and they have to be justified. And it can be a little bit Emperor's New Clothes, you know, undoubtedly. And so 5G massively overhyped, in my opinion, at the show, given that it won't be arriving till 2020. But you're starting to see the first test network, which is something we haven't had before. Three cities in America from Verizon, for example. And I think the other thing about it, which is going to be the most difficult thing about 5G, is a lot of the value, if it's really there, will be invisible because it will just improve your lives in ways that you don't really realise. Oh, you and I did. Why didn't you and I think of this? We should have done a startup. What do you sell? Well, they're really valuable, but you can't see them. A million pounds, please. Yeah. Thank you very much. When I say invisible, I mean to consumers. But for example, let's take one product from NEC who basically have a smart city platform that they've deployed in five cities in New Zealand. And that's really about collecting all the sensors from data. It's also the existing CCTV network and doing computer vision, I understanding what it's looking at, you know, things around traffic. Suddenly that's able to set city management policy, which has an impact on the level of taxation that you need. Now, People aren't going to really be very aware of that, but they'll certainly notice the difference in kind of city policy. And yes, there's a dashboard that they can look at to see how many parking spaces are occupied, what sort of taxis are doing, all of that part of the thing. But really, it's not the same as a handset sitting in your hand. Does it have a more profound impact? I would argue that it did. But you know, as you, you know, attack 5G, I agree, actually. And actually, at the show, I feel it was overhyped, but they did a better job of saying what it's going to be about. 
and then the caveat was always going to be it's a few years away so if you want to look at something that's going to arrive this year you look at 4g and go gigabit lte you know very fast 4g in fact as fast as the early 5g networks would be that was shown off on the sony xperia phone also uh, zte and that's in the qualcomm snapdragon 835 you go why, why do you need speed that fast i'm always reluctant to say you don't need that speed, because it's always proved that you do want more bandwidth. I mean, if we've learned anything from broadband, it's that. It does feel like a lot of the demos were, oh, now we can stream 8K VR, and that's really exciting because reasons. Uh, Ewan McLeod's face is a picture. I'm sad that this isn't a video podcast so our listeners can't see it, because his face is telling a story. Ewan McLeod, say what your face is saying. I Listen, uh, Blanford, I think what you mean is it's faster. And because it's faster, these networks, you can do more things with them. And that's great. And I agree. And I'm really, really looking forward to that. So let's move on then. Thank you. Okay. All of the things you've said, I quite like. Smart cities, all connected. I'm not sure New Zealand necessarily is the place to go for complicated city planning, but, you know, start small. (laughs) But what I don't understand is why I can't have those things with existing technologies, because why do we need to invent a new one to do things that connect existing stuff? But we'll come back to 5G in the future. Because I've got to make my dividend next quarter. It's actually quite simple, the answer to that. It's about cost. You cannot effectively connect everything using existing technologies because of the power requirements and because of the cost requirements. So rather than being, say, $10 a year, it goes down to maybe 50 cents a year. That means instead of connecting... 10 billion things, you can connect 100 billion things. Wow, I didn't think Rafe Blanford was going to become the voice of big telcos, but uh, wow. wow. That's a very good point. It's not just big telcos, there's all sorts of independents coming in as well. There is much more interesting things to talk about. So what's up next? Well, do you want to talk about handsets? Because we skipped over that right at the beginning. No? You don't want to talk about handsets? Can you just say something about Nokia and then we'll move on? Oh, I want to hear about Nokia. Okay. Well, Nokia produced some really interesting network stuff. They had a about the company that, that, that was using Nokia. a Nokia brand okay. for handsets. Rafe Bamford's getting all clever now. Who mm. and what are HND and what did they announce? Okay, so the first thing I want to say here is actually Nokia best represents what MWC has come about. So it's about the networks, it's about IoT, it's about health services. You saw a Nokia branded watch, which was actually a rebrand of a Withings watch. Oh, and by the way, they also do some handsets, but actually that's a non-core activity now. So they've outsourced it to a third party. And this is the HMD Global OI that you refer to, which is the company that has licensed the Nokia brand for use in handsets and is getting Foxconn to actually make the handsets for them. They announced one thing that's actually is what they're about, which is some new mid-tier Android handsets, the Nokia 3.5 and the global launch of the 6. Actually, as they go, pretty solid Android uh, handsets i would say you're paying a bit of a premium for the name and the design but you know good strong choice for a mid-tier android handset but lots of other people did that as well i mean there were handsets from the likes of alcatel the chinese manufacturers and they would have been lost frankly in a sea of sameness so what i think was a pretty genius marketing move they also announced the nokia 3110 2017 edition and that stole all the headlines at the show but i honestly find that a little bit depressing that you know, the big handset announcement of the show was something that was last on sale sort of 15 years ago and that oh, was no, 20 years sense. old. And at the same time, I can admire the cleverness of it as a marketing technique because, of course, all the stories said, 
Nokia 3110, redesigned, thinner, lots of battery life. It's got snake on it. Woohoo. And then in the bottom couple of paragraphs, they describe the Android handsets. So as a launch tactic for Nokia being reborn, genius, because they got loads and loads of attention. So I have some questions. Go on then, Ben. Two questions. Yeah. First sensible question. Yeah. Why? Why does Nokia need or want to make mid-tier Android handsets when that market is so well served? Surely there's not enough money in making those devices when you're competing against the Chinese manufacturers. So what possible reason, apart from you know, satisfying a few of us with a bit of brand nostalgia? Well, it's an excellent question. I think Thank you. they would say <laughs> that there is a reason to differentiate handsets using the design ethos that Nokia represents, and they get a leg up by using the Nokia brand because it's a touchstone for people around quality and durability, and particularly for a more mature audience, it's actually a way to go, you know, that's a safe choice. I mean, it's actually why do you have brands at all? And really, it's about enabling you to make an easier choice without having to understand everything. And, you know, we may regard the Nokia brand as a bit damaged, but actually, in terms of recognition globally, it's still fantastically strong. Mid-tier Android handsets are the easy thing to go after at the moment. So it's a, obviously, it's a huge market, so I can understand why they do that. But my perception is that the likes of Samsung, for example, have really struggled because to make a mid-tier specification Android handset is much easier now and therefore can be done at much lower cost and at much higher quality by far more people. And if Samsung can't do, I suppose the term I'm going to use is premium mid-tier, you know, the the best quality of a certain price bracket. Yes. If Samsung can't do it, why would people buy Nokia and why would they buy enough volume to warrant starting a business? Because you know, it doesn't matter if they sell some, they're going to have to sell millions to make enough money to make it worthwhile running a business. Well, I mean, I would point out that the way HMD Global have chosen to do this is pretty lean and therefore the cost efficiencies around it are impressive. So they've outsourced the manufacturing. They're not looking to do that themselves. They're getting Foxconn to do it. They're also partnering with Google, obviously, on the software side of things. So compared to the old Nokia, they're going to be much more efficient. Therefore, at least in theory... <laughs> to, be, to be perfectly honest, burning wheelbarrows of money was much more efficient than the old Nokia. This, this is true. <laughs> but actually, commodity markets have to be approached in a different way. And that's what they're trying to do while still trying to retain some of that brand value. So honestly, it's a good question because I'm, I think it's going to be a real challenge for them. You and do you have nostalgia for the Nokia 3310? Nope. No, that doesn't surprise me. The thing I want to say about the 3310... <laughs> Loving your input this week, mate. ...is that actually the thing that is almost a bit disturbing about it was I looked on the stand and thought, had a quick play with it. And, and yeah, it's nice. You can see the kind of design ancestry. I looked over and there was no one around the rest of the phones on the stand. There's the Nokia 250, which they announced back in December. Around this 3310, enormous number of people, loads of crowds. And everyone saw the headlines. It was on the front page of the papers in the UK and I'm sure lots of other markets. Mm. Yet this Nokia 250 was basically identical in functionality. All that was different was the plastic wrapper around it, you know, and yes, the keyboard was a little bit different, but it really speaks to the power of that nostalgia and that design. And so actually, I don't think we can dismiss it out of hand. Quite apart from being clever marketing, there are lots of people that are going to go away and go, oh yeah, I can kind of get some of that nostalgia. I'll spend 49 euros on this handset. Can you imagine what the margins on that are going to be? They're going to be fantastic. To talk about a way to sort of you know, cash in some of that brand equity almost straight away 
and people are going to be fine with it because it's going to be a second handset. So, you know, it's very easy to be skeptical and negative about it, but I actually think it's a really smart move. I read an interesting piece on LinkedIn, which is not a phrase I thought I'd be using this week, mm. by Mark Squires, who is previously ex of Nokia. I think now, go on, Rafe, correct me. What was Mark's, what was Mark's role? PR. Global. Global. Involved in a comms role and he's yeah. now at a comms agency. And, you know, friend of the show and a great advocate for us in the past. So I have a great deal good, of Good guy with pins on as well. Absolutely. And um, you know, he's appeared on some of our live shows and he wrote an interesting piece where he expressed the opinion that associating yourself so strongly at launch with nostalgia was almost the polar opposite of what they should have been doing because it actually dragged all the attention in the exactly wrong direction and that mm. what they should have been doing was saying how you know, sort of the things that the Nokia brand had were actually sort of better for the future, that there was, it was a forward-looking handset, not, yes. not something that was rooted in, you know, as you say, you know, snake and nostalgia. Yeah, especially when it's the wrong snake, because actually it was a, a rebadged Gameloft version of snake, wow. which is just, just wrong in many ways. Actually, I agree, because if you're going to go for that, you know, nostalgia strategy, you'd have to do the whole thing. And yet, actually, they're still about those mid-tier, you know, Android phones. And so... It's going to be a real challenge for them to escape that kind of that brand thing because that was what was going to happen anyway. Can I just say that if HMD made a Nokia N86 or N95 Android handset or something like yeah. that, but, but Android with a phenomenal camera in it. So that's a good point to ask about BlackBerry yeah. because they okay. did that because now BlackBerry's done a similar thing and I don't have any of the names to hand because we didn't plan to talk about this. But, but it's TCL. So BlackBerry have done the same thing. They've licensed their brand to another party to manufacture their handsets. It's a similar thing to what Nokia have done-ish, kind of if you stand a long way back. But they're making an Android handset with a hard QWERTY keyboard on the bottom of it. Partly, I think, nostalgia because it looks like the BlackBerry handsets that some of us loved in the past. And partly because that's a differentiator that there, nobody else is doing that. Mm. They obviously, they launched that at the show or around the time of the show. Was there much interest? Yeah, no, there was definitely interest in the key one. But you hit there you nail, go, on, the name. nail on the head. It was about differentiation. And most of those handsets there were very samey. And so each manufacturer was looking for it. It's in on differentiation. So Motorola was trying out its Moto mods with the Moto Z. LG was talking about back to basics, but actually then had a different aspect ratio on its flagship G6, which is basically about having a phone that's taller in order to be able to hold it in your hand easily. And actually, I think that's a trend that's going to almost immediately be adopted. So rather than the 16 to 9 aspect ratio, they were coming back to 2 to 1. And that's actually something to me that makes an awful lot of sense. And so each of those manufacturers was kind of looking for a unique in. Honestly, the BlackBerry thing, I suspect they'll be able to sell some of them to loyalists but there's a reason that kind of QWERTY went away because actually for most people, it's not necessary. I have some nostalgia, but I think they've priced it way too high for a speculative second purchase for me. The days of me spending 500 quid on a, on a handset just to, to try it out for fun. For my friend we just don't, don't really care so much nowadays. I, I don't. And that's the thing, actually, I think about handsets in general at MWC. Mm. They become a commodity. They all look the same. And in some ways, it's pretty damning for the mobile industry that the thing that gets talked about most is the 3110, which... Whether you regard it as a marketing gimmick or a bit of a, a, a misstep, you know, it was called in conversation and we've done the same thing on the podcast here. For me, handsets have sort of stopped mattering in the, the way they did five or 10 years ago. There's still room to do some interesting things. So Oppo, for example, had a phone 
with a five times optical zoom in the camera. And they achieved that by basically having a prism that turned the light 90 degrees and then using the length of the phone to be able to have the movement to do optical zoom. So that's interesting. There'll always be those kind of little things, but I don't think they'll ever again be something that, you know, this is really breaking new ground. This is amazing. You know, they're basically just dumb bits of glass now. The software does stuff. And actually then it's all the things that orbit around phones that make it interesting. And, you know, there's a reason we spent a lot of time talking about smart home and smart cars. There's a reason we introduced this show about talking about mobile and all the things around it. That's because that's where the interest is. And in order to extract value from MWC, you kind of have to take that step and go, it's great to hear about the latest handsets because, you know, that's what tends to dominate the headlines on day zero and day one. But to really understand where mobile is going, you have to understand that it's not just about that kind of very obvious consumer-led handset thing. It's about the much broader picture. So why the GSMA used the slightly corny catchphrase last year, mobile is everything, and this time it was the next element. But that's expressing the idea that mobile now needs to be intrinsic to everything that you do. I hear the catch line for the 2018 show is, just give us your money. That's absolutely fair. More but money. But at the same time, More money. all of us listening to this think kind of mobile-centric view of the world, mobile first, and actually you can make an argument that it's now moving beyond that and you have to maybe think in an ambient-first view of the world when you start thinking about smart home and cars and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you still need to show where all of that comes together and you can see that kind of vision. And there'll be, there's no one individual product will steal the show. Ray Bradford actually, has crept stealthily into defending the show. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. My question for you, Ray, and this is on, one yeah. that everyone who has been following you for a long time would like to know the answer yeah. to. One, where did you stay in Barcelona? I stayed in an apartment in the centre of Barcelona. It was very nice, thank you. And you got home safely every night? I did, and I very much enjoyed taking public transport as well. Thank you for asking, you. Okay, lovely. Uh, your choice, your choice, Blanford. And then the second question everyone wants to know is, will you be purchasing the Nokia 31, blah, blah, blah? Uh, no. So it's, it's nostalgia. So, so not, let's, let's, not, yeah, right. let's just be well, really clear I mean, for here. old people like you, you it's nostalgia, it. but let's just be clear that Nokia 3110 was actually before my time. He's calling us old. You see, Rafe Blanford owned Nokia handsets before they were popular. I was the very first generation that my first phone was a smartphone. Wow. Do you feel old now, Ian McLeod? Uh, no, no. I just, <laughs> I, I just, the fact that I think we can all move on now, right? We can move on from talking about the likes of MWC. We can move on from this kind of conversation on this podcast now, ever, right? Because if you're not buying it, Blanford, if you're not going to buy one of these handsets that's just that everyone was reading about, if you don't care enough to have one as a second phone, what are we bothering about? But I think that says more about the coverage of the show and what you took away from it. So the other interesting element that I want to talk about... Is this you defending the show? And no, we're talking, I'm talking about the industry things that the I saw here. at the show. Go on, let's, let's do the next thing then. Was there's four years from now, which is basically where you have the startups and the buzz that you used to get was very much present there. And, you know, everything wild and wacky that you can think of, but some really interesting things. So, for example, there was a company that was looking to solve the problem of how do you know whether there's a space on on-street parking? And you sort of go, okay, it's not, you know, solving all the world's problems, but we've all been in that situation where you've got a smart car park that can tell you how many spaces are. Doing it on the street in traditional urban environments, very much more difficult. So what they do is they look at activity on the network to do a predictive analysis and be able to tell you with 96% accuracy whether there's going to be a space in the next 200 yards. No need to put any sensors in place. Good use of big data. So 
that kind of really opened up my mind to the possibilities. NTT Docomo had something similar for taxi cabs where they'd actually give a map and say, this is where you should go and drive if you want to be more likely to pick up passengers. They saw a 46% uplift in revenue for taxi drivers. That kind of intelligence, I think, is really interesting. But then also, if you look at the stuff that's in Hall 8, and for those who don't know, that was traditionally what called App Planet. Now it's actually about the app economy, and it's become much more mature. It's really robust, reliable solutions. And honestly, you go around, and you, you go, it's not really interesting anymore. But that's because it's become mainstream. But this idea that you know <laughs> you should have Blanford. engagement strategies, that you should be putting push notifications to app, you should think about the onboarding process. So maybe something is, you know, setting up a bank account, for example, you have to scan government documentation. Doing that kind of thing would have been an enormous effort for a company to set up before. Now there's a company that will sell you a solution that you can install an SDK in your app and do it in a very straightforward manner. That's absolutely to be celebrated because that's taking that sort of thing out into the mass market. All those building blocks mean you can then concentrate on what else is interesting. And so that maturity, I think, is actually really interesting simply because it means that mobile isn't just this ooh, shiny cutting edge thing. It's something that really is becoming mainstream. So I want to talk about some things that you haven't mentioned uh-huh. and I want to know why. In our preview, our post-show preview, I think I said Alexa would be everywhere and that we expected that the pattern from CES would be replicated, that there'd be voice assistants everywhere. And everybody and their mum told me that VR would be everywhere, virtual reality would be everywhere. And neither of those things seemed to come out to me. Ewan, did you hear much about those things? Oh, the occasional tweet, the occasional tweet. So were we wrong or are those things not really mobile-centric anymore? I was surprised not to see more voice. I mean, SK Telecom was showing off an Alexa equivalent, but unless you were looking in automotive, you didn't see that obvious signs of it. There are a couple of manufacturers doing Alexa integrations, but nothing like the same level as CES. And actually, I think voice has its role to play, particularly in automotive, and that was kind of obvious. VR is a more interesting one because it was definitely tethered to high-speed networks in terms of being able to do live streaming. And VR remains the popular way to demonstrate something on a booth where you can't bring the full thing along and stick a VR headset on people. And it's popular. Samsung had its roller coaster and space adventure rides and they're getting more extreme. They were spinning people upside down, putting them down a luge run and everything else. But actually, there were a couple of things that really stood out for me about VR, one of which was actually high-end VR going untethered. And that was actually Intel demonstrating how you can do that using YGIG, that's a, a big thing. Because Say that again, do it, use it doing? Untethered using YGIG. And what is a YGIG? It's a communication standard. It's so one better than the next gig. It's one better uh, than the, it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, it's, it's next gen. We're both telling the same bad jokes. You're on tune, but actually suddenly you don't have a wire trailing out your back. But actually the interesting things were also then VR running off a virtual machine and for enterprise use, that becomes interesting because you don't actually have to have a dedicated PC for each VR unit you're doing, which when you're trying to do training with 20 people, you know, so those kind of more practical but quite boring things are actually important if VR is going to be more widely adopted. And yes, of course, there were the training, the education, the health, all the different examples of it in use. But it's not this new shiny thing anymore. Actually, it's part of the tool set. And so if you think about immersion in general, yes, the whole ecosystem was there around the 360 cameras, plenty of people streaming live. It does perhaps feel that there wasn't that new standout technology that everyone points to and go, oh, that's going to be amazing. 5G, Blanford, 5G. 5G was probably that thing, but I kind of regard it as a good thing that there wasn't this sort of focus on that because actually 
you have the serious business of how can we best use the technologies that are already emerging. If you're going to pick out one thing, it's probably AI, because again, that was a buzzword that was everywhere. Actually, it's quite difficult to demo because it just makes things more efficient and more intelligent. It's not a visual thing. That's quite a big just. Okay, so Ewan, we've covered CES. Hello. We've covered covered CES. We've covered Mobile Congress. Obviously, you've been trawling Europe with your executive hair, hearing all the most exciting news from all the most exciting startups and the biggest thinkers. So if we're not going to see the big trends coming out of Mobile Congress, what is it that we, as people interested in mobile, should be paying attention to this year then? Because with respect to Rafe, I'm not going to get excited about 5G. I'm not going to get excited about mid-tier Android handsets, although both are important in their own way. Yes. Where's the sort of the life-changing hair on fire stuff that we used to literally jump up and down about, you know, a few years ago? I don't know if we're seeing that on a regular basis now, right? Because it does take quite a lot to, to achieve those moments. You only have to look at an Apple keynote or the feedback, the tweets after an Apple keynote to go, was that it? Is that all? Hashtag Where was the cool surprise? Yeah. yeah. Why haven't you changed the world again next yeah. quarter? I think the excitement for me is the consumer pushing or the changing consumer demand and expectation that I'm finding very exciting across Europe, across America, and trying to understand continually how people are changing and opening their minds to different things and different methodologies. And what that means. Is that not the great thing that mobile has enabled, that level of consumer behavior change at a scale that's pretty much unprecedented, at a rate that's unprecedented, and working out how you serve that and how, as a company, you set your strategy to meet that is absolutely the thing that I think can get you excited. But part of the thing here, of course, is it's not one thing, it's lots of different building blocks. And you take something like virtual reality, you throw in some AI some cloud technology then being enabled by 5G and you come up with things that just weren't possible before, but you're never going to pick out one technology and say that's going to change the world because it's the whole thing that changes the world. And if you're talking about scale and effectiveness, actually putting all those bricks together and then in a world where consumers expect these things to be completely seamless and to scale very quickly and they have this expectation that I think is so much more than it was before and rapidly changing and adoption of new things that at a scale that, I mean, you know, Echo we've talked about before is really interesting in that respect. But even looking at mobile phones, in the last decade, we've gone from to 10, 20% ownership now to nearly universal ownership in some markets. And suddenly consumers expect that to be your primary interface. For the big corporates, that level and pace of change is pretty much unprecedented. And that's the thing to get excited about. Okay, so I want perhaps the opportunity for you to tell me that I'm right. We always like doing that. That'll never happen, Ben. Never happen. Blamford's right. So I guess what we're trying to sum up here is that before the show, we, yeah. I was talking to a friend of the show, Ilika, yeah. Ilika Elia, head of mobile here at Digital LBI, and he was pointing out that the reason it wasn't always exciting was that all of this stuff was now coming to the next billion people. And this was about taking things that we were now taking for granted and making it available to a lot more people. And that the hard part about that was not solving earth-shattering sort of interesting science problems or you know sort of breaking new modes and, and opening up new markets it was about taking a problem that worked for a couple of million people and then a billion people and then two billion people and scaling it up and i'm wondering now whether or not actually you know we're seeing the reason that we haven't i don't think convinced you and mcleod that 
the big stuff happened at Mobile World Congress, is that we're now at the point where the mobile network is such a tiny part of what is actually happening that a show built around the mobile operators actually is too small because, as you said, it's an ecosystem of different software, technology, ideas, which is far beyond you know, mobile terminals and, yeah, and airtime. And, and, you know, we're not talking about what phone to buy in the phone shop anymore because actually, you know, they're all good. And so really the show has outgrown its roots and the people who pay for it and fund it. There's no doubt in my mind that operators distort MWC because they are the key stakeholders for the GSMA. And actually that comes back to what I said at the beginning, maybe it should be multiple shows and actually the networks and the handset, but it's just a small piece of that. Of course, they want to be involved in all of those things because they see a massive business opportunity. But talking about those things around scale and around changing things, you can look at one example that they had in the kind of connected cities area was a company that's working on providing pay-as-you-go gas cooking to people in Africa. You say, how does that work? Well, it's using an IoT solution to basically turn a gas tank on and off, and then it's using mobile payments to actually pay for that. And that obviously can have quite a profound change. It's a developmental goal. It's one of the reasons they were showing it off. But the reason that's interesting, because it's cheaper than using charcoal, that kind of gas fuel. But in order to actually be able to afford that, there's quite a significant upfront cost to that cooker in the gas bottle. But that kind of thing has a change and could affect the lives of you know, tens of millions of people. It's very easy for us to sort of just go, it's about the new shiny toys. There is also that element to it. And so, you know, in some ways, it can be quite humbling to go to see that kind of thing. And equally well, you know, you're looking at an IoT solution that's around public safety. You stick an LTE cell on a ship, you can then keep track of everyone on it. And if they go overboard, you get alerted to it. People can be told where they are, you know, saving lives. But also it's in logistics. And that ship, when you know where it is, you can set the level of fuel that's being burnt so it arrives just in time to meet its exact time for docking rather than sitting out in the estuary for three days. All of those things are actually enabled by these bits of technology. And that's fascinating. But yes, you're absolutely right. I think the really big thing is it's not just early adopters that are starting to be interested by this. This is the mass market. And that's why I sort of talk about it having change on the societal level, because it really does. And is that not something to celebrate? It's all the rage on the Blanford estate, you and McLeod. That's all they're talking about is the societal change that 5G is going to bring. I'm glad <laughs> to say that you were right there, Ben. That's you did say you were. were right. There we go. As always. Okay, so we should wrap up. As ever, thank you, Rafe Blanford, for going to the show and tolerating the ham and the walking that we didn't have to. And indeed, yes, look, thank you. checking out all the mid-range Android handsets. And um, you should definitely see uh, Rafe Blanford's new website, all about mid-range Android handsets.com. Yeah. And you particularly <laughs> want the Alcatel A5, which has the flashing LEDs on the back case. Everyone needs one. We'll, we'll be introducing a new segment into the show, detailed analysis of all of your favorite handsets just around the $100 price point. Uh, no, we won't. You cynic. cynic. Uh, <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> If there's anything we've missed out that was interesting on Mobile Congress, or more importantly, stuff that we should be getting excited about in 2017 as uh, mobile grows beyond handsets and mobile operators, please do let us know because most of the interesting topics that we've talked about recently have been prompted by listener input. You can get us at 361podcast on Twitter, uh, 361podcast.com, where you can also send us a message or a private email if you'd like to. We are on Facebook and LinkedIn if you want to use those as well. We should say some thank yous. Thank you to Ray Blanford for going to Barcelona demonstrably sacrificing your health you're quite welcome thank you Rafe yeah. taking one for the team we love you Blanford thank you to Mark at audiowrangler.co.uk for editing this thank you to our friends at Digital SLBI for providing our recording facilities we will be back 
next week and we will see you then. Bye-bye.